1: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
2: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style
1: game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
2: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled The Double Life of Clarence King. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question, I thought I'd ask you about a guy who was the first to do something. In 1973, Martin Cooper did something that no one had ever done before. Did he one, have the first artificial heart implanted in his chest? Or two, did he make the first public cell phone call? Or three, did he make the first bungee jump from a bridge? Or four, did he take the world's first digital camera image? Or five, did he listen to the first song ever recorded on an MP3 player? Again, in 1973, Martin Cooper was the first to do something that no one had ever done before. Did he one, have the first artificial heart implanted in his chest? Two, make the first public cell phone call? Three, make the first bungee jump from a bridge? Four, take the world's first digital camera image? Or five, did he listen to the first song ever recorded on an mp3 player and as always I'll let you think about that question for a bit and I'll let you know the correct answer at the end of this podcast and now for today's story that is titled the double life of Clarence King now before we start I should tell you this is one of my favorite stories for two totally different reasons First, my college degrees are in geology, not history as most people think, so Clarence King the geologist is someone that I was already a very big fan of. But the second part of the story, which really only became more widely known in the past couple of years, is his fascinating secret double life. So let's start with the part that I am most familiar with. That is Clarence King the geologist. In the late 1800s, he was one of the world's preeminent scientists and lived in a world of supposed wealth and prestige. I can't tell you for sure where I first learned about Clarence King, but I suspect it was during the first structural geology course that I took at the University of Buffalo as an undergraduate student. Back then, those courses were taught by another king, Dr. John King, who just loved to tell fascinating true stories uh, to enhance his teaching, kind of like what I do today. Now, every story begins somewhere, and I'll begin this one in Newport, Rhode Island, on January 6, 1842. That's when Clarence King was born. His father's family emigrated from England to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1637. That's you a know, long, long time ago. His great-great-grandfather was a guy named Benjamin King, who reportedly helped another Benjamin, that's Mr. Electricity himself, Benjamin Franklin with his early electrical experiments. Clarence was basically raised by his mother Florence. When Claire was six, his dad died while overseas working for his family's trading company. You see, the company, which had a shadowy connection to the Chinese opium trade, went belly up during a Chinese uprising in 1856. That left Florence with little of anything to raise Clarence. Now, she did remarry in 1860, which financially allowed for Clarence to study chemistry, which he did at the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale University. In 1863, with the United States involved in a bloody civil war, Clarence was nowhere to be found. He split. You see, he had turned his interest to geology and decided to head west with his good friend James Gardner to join the California State Geological Survey with basically no field experience to speak of, and I guess what most people consider just book knowledge at this point. King was appointed to be an assistant geologist within days of arriving in San Francisco. Now they really had nothing to lose. They hired him for absolutely no pay, zip, nada. And it wasn't long before King, along with Gardner and three other men, set out to explore the southern peaks of the Sierra Mountains. It was here that King and Gardner conceived of the plan that would ultimately bring King his fame. You see, at the young age of 25, King went back to Washington, D.C. in 1867 to propose doing a geologic survey along the 40th parallel of the United States. Now, that's roughly the distance from Denver, Colorado, to Sacramento, California. The funds were approved, and King assembled a team to conduct the survey. Three years later, in 1870, King discovered an active glacier on Mount Shasta, which he named the Whitney Glacier after Josiah Whitney. He just happened to be the head of the California Geologic Survey, the survey that hired King in the first place. Now, This was a really significant discovery, since no glacier had yet been discovered in North America. In fact, experts in the field at the time thought it was an impossibility. Suddenly, King was in great demand to give talks and to write magazine articles on his geologic findings. You see, not only was King a great geologist, but he was also a really good storyteller. So starting in May of 1871, a number of his essays appeared in Atlantic Monthly, and they were a huge success. Soon after, a collection of his essays were published in a book titled Mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada, and it was a runaway bestseller. It went through nine printings within its first two years of publication. King was now a celebrity, but he would soon achieve even greater fame. Uh, you see, in the summer of 1872, while the 40th Parallel team was doing their last season of fieldwork, rumors of a vast discovery of diamonds have been circulating around San Francisco. The diamonds supposedly had the potential to generate more riches than any of the great gold discoveries of the West. A mining expert named Henry Jannin laid claim to the discovery and estimated that more than a million dollars worth of gems would be mined each month. Word eventually reached Clarence King, and he decided to go with a couple of other men to check it out. And what they found was that it was all one big fraud. The stream and the surrounding field had been salted with diamonds and some other gems. So King raced back to San Francisco and confronted Janin with his evidence. King not only saved prospective investors from buying into a fraudulent scheme, he also saved the nation from an economic bubble that was sure to burst and bring the U.S. economy down to its knees. King was now not just a famous author and scientist, he was now an American hero. Upon completing the geologic survey and returning to New York, numerous honors, of course, were bestowed upon King, including being the youngest person ever elected to the National Academy of Sciences. And on top of that, in 1879, he was appointed as the first director of the United States Geological Survey, the USGS, Um, but he resigned from that position just two years later so that he could pursue work and investments in the potentially more lucrative world of private industry. Now, While King was a great geologist, he was a very poor businessman, and he was constantly forced to take loans from his rich friends to cover his expenses. But Clarence King was a man of great mystery. You see, after a typical day's work was done and his social obligations were completed, he would just disappear, he would vaporize. What few people knew was that King liked to go slumming. You know, head out into the darker, steamier, sleazier parts of the town at night. And this went on for years and years. Where he went and what he did was not known to anyone. But one small part of it emerged on his deathbed. And this is where the story gets really interesting. At some point between 1887 and 1888... Clarence King met a nursemaid named Ada Copeland in Manhattan and they fell in love. Now falling in love is nothing unusual, but Clarence King was a white man with blue eyes and Ada was a black woman. What we would consider a normal relationship today, you know, dating, marriage, kids, you know, and everything else that goes along with that, was just not possible in the late 19th century between people of two different races. Just imagine the scandal that would have erupted if the public learned that the famous geologist Clarence King was involved in a relationship with a black woman. So King did something that couldn't be accomplished today in our world of mass media. He hid his identity from Ada Copeland. He invented a whole new persona. Clarence King now became a black man named James Todd. He claimed that he was a Pullman porter which was a job given only to black men and carried great prestige at the time. And it was the perfect cover for King, since being aboard a Pullman train could explain why he was gone for extended lengths of time, such as you know when he was on his geological surveys or on trips abroad. Working on a railroad could take you, you know, far away from home for incredibly long periods of time. So by day, he was the white celebrity geologist Clarence King, and by night, he was the black Pullman porter James Todd. And King never allowed the two worlds to ever cross. Just today in one of my classes, uh, students learned that I did this podcast, and they asked me what I was recording, and I was telling them the story. Uh, and the first question they had is, how did he pull off being a black man? Here's, here's a white guy with blue eyes. And it actually was quite simple. You see, back then, if you had even one drop of black blood somewhere in your ancestry, you were considered black. It didn't matter what King looked like, since just saying you were a black man back then, that was proof enough that no one would question it. While there were many light-skinned black people that got away with being white, it was inconceivable that any white person would want to pass themselves off as black. The loving couple exchanged wedding vows in a civil ceremony in September of 1888 and had five children together. And somehow he managed to maintain his double life until his death 13 years later. You see, it was as Clarence King that he earned his income, but clearly it was his life as James Todd that seemed to bring him the most enjoyment. Now, King lost all of his money during the 1893 financial panic and was never financially solvent again. He was forced to constantly borrow large sums of money from his rich friends in Manhattan, but his middle-class family was never aware that this had taken place. In late 1901, King was on his deathbed in Prescott, Arizona and decided to come clean. He wrote a letter to his wife Ada to let her know of his true identity. His will, which was written two years prior to his marriage to Ada, left what little he had to his mother. But King told Ada that he had sent $80,000, that's over $2 bucks in today's money, to his longtime friend James Gardner, and that she would be set for life. But things didn't work out that way. Initially, she did receive a monthly stipend, and her house was bought and paid for. But when Gardner died in 1912, the payments continued, But Ada had no clue who was sending them, so she decided to go to court to gain control of her husband's estate. And after numerous attempts and lawyer after lawyer, Ada finally got her day in court on November twentieth, 1933. That's 32 years after her husband died, and this would prove to be a big mistake. It was determined in court that there was no estate, there was no trust fund at all. Instead, there was some secret benefactor taking care of all her expenses. It turns out that the money originally came from King's friend, the former U.S. Secretary of State, John Hay. But when Hay died, his wife continued the payments. Then she died, so her wealthy son-in-law, Payne Whitney, continued them, and when he died, his widow continued them also. But now that it was in court, the monthly payments abruptly stopped. Although they did let her keep her home, it is generally believed that she only received the payments as sort of hush money. That was to keep the fact that Clarence King was married to a black woman secret. But once the cat was out of the bag, that was the end of the payments. Now, I don't know what you conclude from this, but I just find it amazing that King could keep these two lives so separate that they never intermingled at the slightest. Personally, I think that Ada did know more than she ever revealed about her husband and probably that some of King's closest friends knew about the relationship, but really that's just pure speculation on my part. Now, Ada may have lost her income, but she lived a very long life. She died on April fourteenth, nineteen 1964, at the age of 103. That's 62 years after her husband, Clarence King uh, I mean, James Todd, died. Useless, useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.:
0: OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry?
1: Ooh, a book club. Computer Solitaire.
0: Huh Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase Over and law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: And now for a few words from our retro sponsor.
0: You know what our baby is like? Said Mr. Maxwell to the missus. He's like a balloon the way he flies around the house with his games and toys. Right, agreed Mrs. Maxwell, even to the way his energy collapses when he doesn't feel well. I guess many parents have noticed that about their child. And when baby spirits do collapse like a balloon, they most likely know exactly what to do to make him well again. I know that's true of most modern mothers anyhow. For when baby needs a laxative, They give their babies a laxative that's made specially for children, Fletcher's Castoria. Fletcher's Castoria contains no harsh ingredients as some adult laxatives do. It's gentle, effective, just right for babies and small children. Furthermore, babies love to take Fletcher's Castoria because its taste is so pleasant. All in all, these are pretty good reasons why you mothers should get some Fletcher's Castoria and always have it on hand. So visit your druggist today and ask him for a bottle. Caution, used only as directed. And look for the green band on the package. Then you can be sure you have the original children's laxative, genuine Fletcher's Castoria.
2: That commercial for Fletcher's Castoria was taken from the May twenty third, 1947 episode of The Bride and Groom radio show, which was hosted by John Nelson. Now, if you're curious, Castoria was patented on May 12, 1868 by Dr. Samuel Pitcher. It was originally called Pitcher's Castoria, but it became Fletcher's Castoria in 1871 uh, when a guy named Charles H. Fletcher formed the Centaur Company to buy the formula and the marketing rights from Dr. Pitcher. He managed to build the company into one of the largest pharmaceutical manufacturers at the time of his death, which was on April 9, 1922. He was aged 86. In what was one of the earliest mass marketing campaigns, Castoria ads could be seen just about everywhere for decades. If you check out the website forgottennewyork.com that's forgotten-ny.com uh, you can see some photos of a few buildings in New York City that still have the ads painted on their sides although they are long faded uh, now, if you can follow, this the Centaur company was fully acquired by Sterling Drug, which is a division of the Sterling United Drug Rexel mega conglomerate, Drug Incorporated. That was the name of the company, Drug Incorporated. Uh, and that'll be the subject of a uh, future retro sponsor ad. In 1984, Sterling Drug sold Fletcher's Castoria to Mentholatum, which is now owned by the Roto Pharmaceutical Company in Japan. And what I find most interesting about Castoria is that it never contained castor oil. I always assumed that it did. It was a flavored laxative that contained senna as its active ingredient. And as you'd expect, the formula and the flavor has been tinkered with over the years. In fact, today it's called Fletcher's Laxative for Kids, which is now root beer flavored. For a product that was once nearly in everybody's home, it is virtually non-existent on store shelves today. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first story is dated September 22, 1927. It was reported that officials in Auckland, New Zealand received both flag signals and telephone calls from a prison that was located on the volcanic island of Rangitoto, which is about four miles away. It was every municipality's worst nightmare. There had been a huge explosion, and there were numerous casualties and injuries. So the emergency response was immediate. Uh, Police and medical experts raced to the island while the ambulances and the hearses lined up along the wharf. Theaters were quickly transformed into hospitals to treat the wounded. And as you'd expect with any emergency, thousands of people gathered in a torrential downpour uh, to watch what was going on. But when the island was searched, no bodies were found. It turned out to be a big hoax, and the entire city fell for it. Our next tidbit dates back to August 15th of 1934. It was reported that 28-year-old Jess Chastain of Huntsville, Alabama, heard a scream by a neighbor. So Jess ran to her aid and found that she was being electrocuted through contact with a switch. So he pulled her off, and she only suffered minor burns. Unfortunately Jess didn't make out as well. In the process of pulling her off, Jess swallowed his false teeth and choked to death. And our last is dated January 15th of 1961, it's reported that a Hungarian pianist named Thomas Blod, the so-called surrealist of music, gave a performance at Wigmore Hall in London, England. The concert almost didn't happen because British Railways lost his piano in transit. So an emergency piano was substituted, and luckily it had no effect on the performance. That's because this was the first London presentation of the Dolce Piano, which the article claims is a silent piano. Yes, you heard it right. The piano made no sound. It had the hammers tied down. Plod gave a vigorous performance as a pretty girl turned the sheets of music. He claimed to have played some classics, but he could have well just played anything, you know, since all the audience heard was silence with an occasional cough. Recordings of the music, I mean, silence, were also made available. The audience responded with an equal silence by sitting on their hands and applauding quietly. I did some further checking and found out this is also a hoax. It was a good one since the story was picked up by countless newspapers around the world. It turns out that Blod was really a Cambridge antiques dealer who had a general hatred of modern music. I guess this was his way of getting even.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you about Martin Cooper and what he was the first person to do. And I gave you the following choices. Was it one, did Martin Cooper have the first artificial heart implanted into his chest? Or two, did he make the first public cell phone call? Or three, did he make the first bungee jump from a bridge? Or four, did he take the world's first digital camera image? Or finally, five, did he listen to the first song ever recorded on an MP3 player? Hmm, so which one did you choose? Well, I hope that you answered choice number two. On April 3rd of 1973, Martin Cooper made the first public cell phone call on 6th Avenue in New York City near the New York Hilton Hotel. Cooper was the general manager of Motorola's communications systems division. And at the time, Motorola was in a big race with AT&T's Bell Labs to develop the cell phone technology. Now, since Cooper had the first cell phone, he certainly could not have called another cell phone. Instead, he called a landline, the landline of his biggest competitor, Bell Labs. He spoke to the head of research at Bell Labs, Dr. Joel S. Engel, to let him know that Motorola had beaten them. Cooper claimed that he got the idea for the cell phone from watching Captain Kirk using his communicator on the old Star Trek TV show. Cooper shares the original cell phone patent number 3,906,166 with seven other men. Well, as I bring this podcast to a close, I'd like to thank everyone for their patience. Uh, I've received numerous emails, a few postings on uh, Facebook as to where was I? Where are the podcasts? Well, it turns out I've been working very, very hard on my house. Uh, I gutted the whole upstairs and I'm doing most of the work right now by myself so i've been working to get it ready for winter and i finally got the floor leveled last week so i decided to take a break and record this podcast i do hope you enjoyed today's story on clarence king and his double life it's one of my favorite stories from the past few years i also hope you enjoyed uh, the question of the day on martin cooper and his cell phone technology his invention our retro sponsor fletcher's castoria and of course the news of the weird past tidbits on the new zealand explosion hoax the man killed by his false teeth and of course, uh, Thomas Blod's Silent Concert. Uh, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. I did receive a few inquiries as to why you can't find Einstein's refrigerator in the Kindle version overseas and that's very simple the publisher of Einstein's refrigerator here in the US only has the right to sell it within the United States and Canada they cannot sell the Kindle version elsewhere and no one else has picked it up at this point Uh, uh, I will post on Facebook additional resources some scans of some of the original material including a a book related to uh, Clarence King uh, I'll put those up on Facebook, which is www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. It's all one word, useless information podcast. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name, useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my website, uselessinformation.org. org. Uh, the Facebook page also contains a link to contact me. Lastly, as always, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. It really has increased quite a bit considering I didn't put out a podcast last month. The numbers are closing in on 1 million downloads. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody for that, and uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.
0: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.